If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of November 15, 2020. The podcast that feeds it off on Ox. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's lapidify the news of the bogus. Almost a month ago, we covered a number of scientists, experts in epidemiology, who were standing up for real science and basically begging governments all over the world to end the bogus lockdowns. One of them was Sunetra Gupta, professor of epidemiology at the University of Oxford, and she just learned firsthand how dirty the politics pool can get when you stick your big toe in. She and other scientists had published a proposal for the actual scientific consensus, which we've covered over and over again on this podcast, targeted protection of at-risk individuals while allowing the low-risk population to go on with their lives, building herd immunity for the population, and staving off economic ruin. This was published as the Great Barrington Declaration, which, as of this recording, has been signed by 12,000 medical and public health scientists, as well as almost 35,000 medical practitioners, not to mention over 600,000 concerned citizens. As she summarized, We are already seeing how current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short- and long-term public health. The results, to name just a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health. Such pitfalls of national lockdowns must not be ignored, especially when it is the working class and younger members of society who carry the heaviest burden. Ultimately, lockdown is a luxury of the affluent, something that can be afforded only in wealthy countries, and even then, only by the better-off households in those countries. I was also deeply concerned that lockdowns only delay the inevitable spread of the virus. Indeed, we believe that a better way forward would be to target protective measures at specific vulnerable groups, such as the elderly in care homes. The simple truth is that COVID-19 will not just go away if we continue to impose enough meaningless restrictions on ourselves. And the longer we fail to recognize this, the worse will be the permanent economic damage, the brunt of which, again, will be borne by the disadvantaged and the young. But the result, as she related in this article she wrote for the Daily Mail, was... I was utterly unprepared for the onslaught of insults, personal criticism, intimidation, and threats that met our proposal. The level of vitriol and hostility, not just from members of the public online, but from journalists and academics, has horrified me. Someone more politically savvy might have warned her what she was in for, one example being the story we covered five years ago about the Canadian research scientist who published the true and factual statement that there were no detectable levels of radiation in the Pacific Ocean as a result of the Fukushima disaster, and who promptly received accusations of being a shill for the nuclear industry and even death threats. Almost exactly the same thing has happened to Gupta. Almost immediately, the censorship machine kicked into gear. Quote, I was left stunned after being invited onto a mid-morning radio program recently, only for a producer to warn me minutes before we went on the air that I was not to mention the Great Barrington Declaration. The producer repeated the warning and indicated that this was an instruction from a senior broadcasting executive. 
And this was not an isolated experience. A few days later, another national radio station approached my office to set up an interview, then withdrew the invitation. They felt, on reflection, that giving airtime to me would not be in the national interest. But the Great Barrington Declaration represents a heartfelt attempt by a group of academics with decades of experience in this field to limit the harm of lockdown. I cannot conceive how anyone can construe this as against the national interest. Matters certainly are not helped by outlets such as The Guardian, which has repeatedly published opinion pieces making factually incorrect and scientifically flawed statements, as well as borderline defamatory comments about me, while refusing to give our side of the debate an opportunity to present our view. And on social media, of course, things were much worse. Quote, I have all but stopped using Twitter, but I am aware that a number of academics have taken to using it to make personal attacks on my character, while my work is dismissed as pseudoscience. Depressingly, our critics have also taken to ridiculing the Great Barrington Declaration as fringe and dangerous. But fringe is a ridiculous word, implying that only mainstream science matters. If that were the case, science would stagnate. And dismissing us as dangerous is equally unhelpful, not least because it is an inflammatory emotional term charged with implications of irresponsibility. When it is hurled around by people with influence, it becomes toxic. And you knew this one was coming, quote, the one I find most upsetting is the accusation that we are indulging in policy-based evidence-making. In other words, drumming up facts to fit our ideological agenda. And that ideology, according to some, is one of right-wing libertarian extremism. Gupta's politics are very left-wing, by the way. But, of course, they were only doing this because they were shills for the Koch brothers, quote, According to Wikipedia, for instance, the Great Barrington Declaration was funded by a right-wing think tank with links to climate change deniers. It should be obvious to anyone that writing a short proposal and posting it on a website requires no great financing. But let me spell it out, since apparently I have to. I did not accept payment to co-author the Great Barrington Declaration. In fact, the Wikipedia page mentions the Koch brothers four separate times, just in case anyone missed it. As for the baseless assaults on her expertise and credentials, which include receiving the Zoological Society of London's Scientific Medal and the Royal Society's Rosalind Franklin Award, quote, I have been accused of not having the right expertise, of being a theoretical epidemiologist with her head in the clouds. In fact, within my research group, we have a thriving laboratory that was one of the first to develop an antibody test for the coronavirus. We were able to do so because we had been working for the past six years on a flu vaccine using a combination of laboratory and theoretical techniques. Our technology has already been patented and licensed and presents a rare example of a mathematical model leading to the development of a vaccine. Really, who are you going to listen to? People like her or those who, instead of showing expertise and being willing to present data and evidence, insist on character assassination and silencing the opposition. You know, the side that keeps whining, listen to the science. Or as she put it, proponents of lockdown policies have seemed intent on shutting down debate rather than promoting reasoned discussion. It is perplexing to me that so many refuse even to consider the potential benefits of allowing non-vulnerable citizens, such as the young, to go about their lives and risk infection, when in doing so, they would build up herd immunity and thereby protect the lives of vulnerable citizens. 
Yet, rather than engage in serious, rational discussion with us, our critics have dismissed our ideas as pixie dust and wishful thinking. Clearly, none of us anticipated such a vitriolic response. The abuse that has followed has been nothing short of shameful. But rest assured, whatever they throw at us, it won't do anything to sway me or my colleagues from the principles that sit behind what we wrote. Right on, Gupta! Keep fighting the good fight! And as she points out, there are growing numbers of scientists and doctors speaking out and growing numbers of groups being created to get the truth out and stop the madness. Best of luck to all of them. If you're looking for ways to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand advertisements, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to listen to the podcast and all of my videos on bittube.tv or lbry.tv to get cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. Or if you listen to the podcast at the podcast page, you'll also generate crypto. You can also go to airtime.bogosity.tv to get the airtime extension and generate crypto for yourself and the creators on the web anywhere you go, including my YouTube channel. Get five tubes free just for installing the extension and signing up. And then simply browse the web as normal. Easily monetize your favorite creators and yourself with cryptocurrency without advertising on bidtube.tv or lbry.tv or with the airtime extension at airtime.pagosity.tv. Qualified immunity has just been dealt another well-deserved blow, this time by the Supreme Court, in a trend we really hope continues. In the case of Trent Taylor, he was focused into a solitary confinement cell with every surface covered with massive amounts of feces, and he was forced to stay in there naked. He was afraid to eat for fear of fecal contamination, and he couldn't even drink water because feces was packed inside the water faucet. His only so-called toilet was a clogged drain in the floor. The officers, noting this condition of the cell, laughed and said that Taylor was, quote, going to have a long weekend. And that was just the start of it. The ridiculous and psychopathic appeals court ruled, quote, the law wasn't clearly established. Taylor stayed in his extremely dirty cells for only six days, though the law was clear that prisoners couldn't be housed in cells teeming with human waste for months on end. We hadn't previously held that a time period so short violated the Constitution. That dooms Taylor's claim. But the Supreme Court, in a 7-to-1 ruling, disagreed. Quote, the Fifth Circuit erred in granting the officers qualified immunity on this basis. No reasonable correctional officer could have concluded that, under the extreme circumstances of this case, it was constitutionally permissible to house Taylor in such deplorably unsanitary conditions for such an extended period of time. The Fifth Circuit identified no evidence that the conditions of Taylor's confinement were compelled by necessity or exigency. Nor does the summary judgment record reveal any reason to suspect that the conditions of Taylor's confinement could not have been mitigated either in degree or duration. Of course, we wouldn't even be in this mess if SCOTUS hadn't created qualified immunity out of the blue to begin with, but it's nice to see that even they have their limitations, may even be willing to reverse it. 
And while we gave new Justice Amy Coney Barrett props for ruling against it in the past, she didn't take part in this decision. So that means that the number of justices currently displaying a more limited view of qualified immunity is 8 to 1. The one, by the way, is Justice Thomas. But he's gone on record in several past cases about being skeptical about the entire doctrine of qualified immunity. So, what gives? We don't know since he didn't write a dissent. It may be that he wasn't happy with the decision, not because he's in favor of qualified immunity all of a sudden, but because this ruling avoids actually modifying or overruling the precedent, even when dealing with cells teeming with human excrement. Whatever the reason, now seems a really good time for opponents of qualified immunity to push their case up to the Supreme Court as quickly as they can, before tough-on-crime Biden and top-cop Harris, both of whom have supported qualified immunity in the past, at least when they weren't running for president in an age of Black Lives Matter, get a chance to stack the court the other way. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home. And don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. So we've talked a couple of times about the stupid DMCA action against YouTube DL, a piece of open source software allowing the direct downloading of YouTube videos, which was removed from GitHub by a whiny RIAA who thinks that's the only way people can pirate their songs somehow. But in addition to the non-infringing uses I mentioned last time, Parker Higgins over at the Freedom of the Press Foundation has shown how often the tool is used for legitimate journalism. And according to the court's Betamax standard, tools with non-infringing uses don't violate copyright law. He wrote, In fact, YouTube DL is a powerful general-purpose media tool that allows users to make local copies of media from a very broad range of sites. That versatility has secured it a place in the toolkits of many reporters, newsroom developers, and archivists. For now, the code remains available to download through YouTube DL's own site, but the disruption of its development hub and the RIAA saber-rattling jeopardizes both the future of the software and the myriad journalistic workflows that depend on it. He quoted a Norwegian journalist saying, I have also used it to secure a good quality copy of video content from YouTube, Twitter, etc. in case the content gets taken down when we start reporting on it. Downloading the content does not necessarily mean we will republish it, but it is often important to secure it for documentation and further internal investigations. Also, Higgins said, local copies can be subject to more rigorous analysis, and quoted John Bolger, who used video footage to debunk the denial of a police presence at an Occupy Wall Street protest, saying, 
In order to reach my conclusions about the NYPD's involvement, I had to watch this video hundreds of times, in slow motion, zoomed in, and looping over critical moments. That sort of thing just isn't possible in YouTube's interface. Another was quoted saying, We have sometimes been able to take a closer look at individual frames after downloading with YouTube DL to identify officers when they are not wearing their badges intentionally or obfuscating them with things to avoid accountability. Higgins concluded, Clearly, YouTube DL in particular and the ability to download and manipulate online videos in general are an important part of the work of journalism and contemporary media literacy. Given the important role that YouTube DL plays in public interest reporting and archiving, the RIAA's efforts to have the tool removed represent an extraordinary overreach with the possibility for dramatic unforeseen consequences. We urge RIAA to reconsider its threat and GitHub to reinstate the account in full. Not to mention the fact that it's just refreshing to see someone standing up for real journalism for a change. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to demineralize this week's biggest bogan emitter. And it's another one for the news media as they completely jump the gun and say that not only is Joe Biden absolutely the president, anyone who says otherwise, in other words, anyone with the slightest knowledge of civics, is a racist or a conspiracy theorist or whatever they call people who factually rebut their claims these days. The election was never going to end with the votes on election day. The news media may want to pretend that's what happens, but really it's just the first step in a process that doesn't conclude until early January. Until then, there are numerous opportunities for reviews and challenges to make sure that the votes were cast and counted fairly and transparently. And Biden's news media cronies apparently don't like the fact that Trump is actually following up on that. So they get dressed down by none other than real clear politics, whom no one could accuse of being a shill for Trump. Wait, what am I saying? They'll accuse anyone of that if need be. Anyway, as they point out, if Biden really does want to unite the country, that will mean convincing the lion's share of the 71 million Trump voters that their votes were counted as part of a fair and honest process. But the media declaring a winner before that process had finished, indeed when it had barely even begun, undermines the very confidence Biden needs. As RCP's Andy Puzder wrote, 
Even if the declaration of a Biden victory is found to be accurate, the call was premature, and it will make the effort to unify our nation far more difficult. Like millions of voters from both sides of the political aisle, I'm sensitive to the need for a definitive election outcome, untainted by irregularities or allegations of fraud. Even with razor-thin margins separating the two candidates in key states, we should be able to arrive at a final result that both sides can accept. Of course, with those razor-thin margins being in many key states, Trump is absolutely within his rights to contest the results and demand that the votes be checked. This is a legal process that has been part of our presidential elections from day one. Even a few would-be presidents have taken advantage of it, having lost with margins too wide for any of it to make a difference. But as Puzder says, Unity is much less likely, however, when the media simply declares a winner before the matter is resolved. In 2012, many Republicans felt disappointed when Mitt Romney lost to President Obama. Very few felt cheated. That will not be the case in 2020 if the current president's supporters believe that the media preempted the official process so as to disparage or prevent a full investigation of the president's claims. The New York Times exacerbated this problem when it announced in an odd Election Day tweet, later withdrawn, that the role of declaring the winner of a presidential election in the U.S. falls to the news media. Of course, it does not. That responsibility falls on Congress. But that tweet told the president's supporters all they needed to know about the media's intent. Trump's path to victory may be a long shot, but it's one he's legally entitled to. And if he fails, it will just confirm that Biden's victory was fair and honest. You'd think that Biden and his supporters would welcome that. But this is the same press who treated Biden's victory as a foregone conclusion, whose pollsters predicted landslide victories in key states, and who, once again, were shown to be completely and utterly wrong, as, if anything, this is one of the closest presidential elections in American history. And as Puzder points out, it's yet another blow to their reputation that they seriously need to repair. Quote, the multi-year Russian collusion debacle exposed the links to which some media outlets were willing to go to tarnish his reputation, and the stunning failure on the part of reporters, pundits, expert commentators, elected officials, and media executives to acknowledge their bias and their errors, let alone apologize for their roles in spreading roundly debunked disinformation, casts the motivations of those outlets in a harsh light. How can the president's supporters trust people who misled them for years and then refused to acknowledge fault when the truth was exposed? Which is pretty much what we were saying all along, as we clearly saw through, as the archives show, the disinformation about Russia. And if you're going to accuse us of being Trump apologists, well, just look through the archives of this podcast to see how silly you'd be. Puzder concludes... With nearly half of the electorate now wondering if voting even matters, the media's rush to judgment has done a grave disservice to the goal of unifying our nation. If America is to have any hope of healing the wounds inflicted by years of intense and divisive partisanship, then the media would be well advised to leave it to the proper authorities to declare the outcome of this election and stop attempting to foist a premature judgment on unwilling voters. Of course, we might be tempted to say it's a good thing for people to question if voting matters and to realize that no president, regardless of his margin of victory, has the authority to do pretty much any of the things that Biden plans to do once he's in the White House. But still, the crassness of the news media never fails to amaze us, which is why we have to once again name them this week's Biggest Bogani Mitter. 
want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmu dot Bogosity dot TV. And now let's paternalize this week's Idiot Sometimes I give this moniker out with glee, and sometimes, like this time, I do it with reluctance and maybe even a tinge of regret. This week it goes to Naomi Wolf, who apparently didn't realize that Biden supported the nonsensical and pseudoscientific lockdowns. But at the same time, I actually kind of want to congratulate her. Wolf is a leading figure in the feminist movement, an author, a journalist, and former political advisor to Al Gore and Bill Clinton. On November 8th, she tweeted, if I'd known Biden was open to lockdowns as he now states, which is something historically unprecedented in any pandemic and a terrifying practice, one that won't ever end because elites love it, I would never have voted for him. Really, I want to stand up and cheer for this tweet. For someone of her background to have the integrity to stand up for science above her political allegiance is almost unheard of today. But... Come on, Wolf! I mean, how could you not know that Biden was about as pro-lockdown as you can get if you were paying any amount of attention? In a follow-up tweet, she said, There has never been any case of suppressing entire economies and restricting free movement of whole societies in any free country in any past epidemic. Again, I want to cheer this tweet. It's nice to know she's against a destructive policy that causes small businesses to collapse, people to lose their jobs and homes, increase suicide rates, increase other health issues, and disproportionately hurts minorities. She even retweeted the Daily Mail article we covered earlier and condemned the harassment and silencing of Dr. Gupta. So it's really puzzling that, as much importance as she clearly places on the issue, why she wouldn't have even asked the question of the candidate she supported. Geez, Wolf, you didn't actually think the Democrats were pro-science, did you? I do feel a little bad about berating her for this, since it does seem she's come to at least some level of realization. But I don't know if she understands the full extent of it. Without being able to read her mind, I think it's clear that what she was doing was what most of those 74 million voters were doing. Not voting for Biden, but voting against Trump. Fair enough. Again, all you have to do is listen through the archives to know that there is no love lost between this podcast and the 45th president. But this is what you get for voting against someone instead of for someone. This is what the lesser of two evils gets you. She didn't vote for Biden. She voted against Trump. And in the process, she had no clue what she was getting. 
Which is why, regardless of the outcome, I personally don't regret my vote for Joe Jorgensen. So if I met her personally, I'd shake her hand and congratulate her over this, and I really hope this realization makes her make more cautious decisions at the ballot box in future. But as far as what she did back on November 3rd, not realizing that lockdowns were a major part of Biden's platform just has to give Naomi Wolf this week's... Idiot Well, that wraps up this Come On Shelf Paper edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please keep this podcast going by subscribing and supporting in one of several different ways you can find at donate.bogosity.tv, including PayPal, cryptocurrency, or subscribing at Patreon or Subscribestar to listen early and ad-free. Also, please come to discord.bogosity.tv where you can join the discussion and post a question, statement, news article, or rant. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from L. Neal Smith. How can any of us vote informedly if politics itself is cloaked in guilty secrets? The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial the Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins.